There's an elephant in the room that we need to talk about. And I'd like to have that talk in a, in a special place. So now I'm climbing up the mountain towards Slee of Moor. As you can hear, the sat-nav is leading us towards Slee of Moor Mountain on Ackle Island, County Mayo. And I'm taking us to a village folded into the landscape, a mist-swaddled place of, of raw and rugged beauty. It's the politest little mist, isn't it? But it's a light white and it's not cold or wet. And the chat I want to have, well, it's about the famine. We don't really refer much to the famine these days, do we? Like apart from in history books. And that's odd because it hasn't gone away. Science is now clear about how profound trauma of this kind affects people for generations afterwards, both physically and psychologically. What this means is that, in essence, both you and I have been affected by the famine of the mid-1800s. And to poke at all this a little bit, I've made a trip out west to the deserted village on Schlie of Moor in County Mayo. It's a ghost realm, really, now. A place that suffered terribly during some of the darkest years of Ireland's past. The years of hunger. But this island of Ackle actually has resonances on so many levels. It's like a crucible of bog and rock that offers glimpses of how people survived throughout the millennia in a harsh, storm-swept environment. And the ingenuity with which they adapted to the challenging conditions. The island is elemental. But also so beautiful, which is, I suppose, what attracted the great artists like Paul Henry and Graham Greene and Heinrich Böll. But today the focus is on the famine village, described by Paul Henry as troglodyte in its uncouthness. Though he went on to admit that he recognised something personal in it too, saying it had an intimacy, a friendliness, a familiarity. It was the ancestral home of the tribe. Welcome to the Almanac of Ireland, by the way. A compendium of tales, insights and ramblings from all over Ireland. It's in the family of the most deadly poisons with mushrooms, the but it's not connected with cats with two tails. You're saying we turn so, um, to Christianity because of a weather event. Sunny days really are the best times to see them. Okay, because you and I are about to get rich. Arabs of North Africa. The, are the old pagan gods were suddenly not giving us good harvest. They were giving us these terrible... Gerald Mangan is waiting for us at the edge of the village. You're putting the coat on and you know more than me. No, no, I'm just putting it on. He's a tour guide with valuable insights into the history of the place. So if you want, we can have a walk back and see where we're going. Schlie of Moor Mountain looms behind us, poised and stark, overlooking sweeping bogland to the sea beyond. The beauty here is palpable. Come September time, yeah. that whole side of that mountain turns purple. Oh, wow. And when you walk through there, you can smell honey. Oh, come on. Yeah, it is unreal. The village is to the right of us, and it has an unusual configuration. The houses are strung out in an unsettling straight line along a road that was built to allow access to a quartz quarry. And there's bog cotton everywhere too. 
the abandoned homes we're looking at are from the 1700s. They were built perpendicular to the road with the gable ends facing onto it. Now though, they're merely stone gables, supporting bits of adjacent walls and with nature laying claim to everything in between. So it's roughly nearly two kilometres long. It's most unusual in that it's a linear development. Normally Irish villages, well kind of higgly-piggly in a cluster type thing. But this one is most unusual in that it's laid out in a long line. 137 houses here at the heights of the village in the 1800s. Now, depending on what you call a house, you're down to anywhere between 70 and 80. Depending on what you call a house. So, huge amount of history attached to this place. Huge amount of history attached to it. This village probably was one of the biggest villages on the island. As I say, 137 houses at its, at its height. Mm -hmm. uh, Depending on who you talk to, some people say the number of people in a house varied between 8 to 15 per house. Whoa. Yeah. Which is like, what, is it like 10 foot by 18 foot? About that, or give or take. They're all very similar. There's no two exactly a carbon copy of one another. They're all similar. Some have features that the others don't and some are smaller, some are slightly bigger. But they're basically roughly all the same. The majority are just one room. Yeah. Just one room. And in that, as I say, you can have anything up to 8 to 15 people, plus 4 cows. It's hard to get my head around that. How could so many people live, or coexist really, in such a constricted space? We step over a tiny stream in the roadside ditch and make our way to where the door once was. So we've just walked into this little deserted ruins, which is like maybe three metres wide by four metres long, maybe four and a half metres long. And there's a door with a lintel, a very low door, which I'd have to bend right down to get under. It's like five foot or maybe, yeah, maximum. And nice stone was well, stoned almost in the form of block work, like square blocks, perhaps cut out as a limestone or sandstone. So it's sandstone. schist. Schist. Say that carefully. <laughs> And it's tiny. If I lay down, I, you know, I'd almost stretch from wall to wall. And you're saying there was 10 or 12 people? So this is one of the, the smallest houses. Yeah. It's not one of the biggest. Uh -huh. And what you have in here, you would have between 8 to 15 per house. Plus also your cattle okay. and your fire. Oh, so there's the fireplace there. Yeah. Uh -huh. The fire was always up against the, left, or the uh, northern wall. And the cattle always down here. Oh, right. Always, always away from here. the fire. Always away from the fire. Fire was one of the most important items in the house. The fire had a huge amount of superstition attached to it. And it was the woman of the house, her first job in the morning and her last job at night to tend the fire. If that fire went out, then something bad was going to happen to either the house or the uh, people in the house. Summer and winter. Absolutely, that fire was going constantly. That was your means of heating, that was your means of cooking, that was your means, whatever else, it kept the house nice and toasty. Left-hand side of the fire, always, always, always referred to the female. Female side of the fire, left, right-hand side, male. You see that in Mongolia, Mongolian yurts. You have this Absolutely, the same thing. The exact same thing can be traced right across in these types of uh, peoples, right across the world. So the most important spot in the house, yeah. the most important spot was that corner there, top of the left. By the woman's chair, by the fireside. Yeah, okay. and that usually was where granny slept. And that spot, that place, was known as the Kalach. Yeah. A place of respect, a person of respect sat in it. Over the years, the word Kalach came to be associated with the respected 
person that sat there and eventually ended up as a term of disrespect, Kalach, an old cantankerous old woman. But originally it was to a place and then to the person. So Granny was the most respected person in the, yeah, in the yeah. house. It was basically, I suppose, you were looking on it as a type of matriarchal society. So that was a, where Granny slept. Then her son and his wife and his brothers and sisters in varying degrees here, close to the fire. All in front of the fire, all yeah. All in front of the fire. And then your cattle, always down here. Oh, right. Always all away from here. the fire. Always away from the fire. Perfectly thought out architecture. Oh, absolutely. Everything, as I say, scale. everything was used. Nothing was thrown away. Everything had a use. Everything had a purpose. The ingenuity of the people who built these houses is inspiring. With almost no furniture or utensils, they used their own creativity to find a way of thriving. And when you look at the fields outside, you get a sense of how 18th and 19th century people worked cleverly with nature to ensure their survival. They were in tune with things. So if you look below us here, yeah. you will see that there are long lines of uh, fields stretching all the way down there. Mm -hmm. But if you look more closely, you'll see that the long lines are made up of small little squares that kind of, you can just see the, the humps and the bumps in the long lines. Okay. And this relates back to the type of agriculture that these people practice here. It's called the Rundale system. Right. And basically Rundale, you had one fence around the village. Inside that fence, very technical name on it was called the infield where you had your crops and your cattle and this village was all about cattle from the very first and on the outside of that fence you had the outfield two technical names so basically what you had here you had a kind of communism before it was even popular everybody got a share of the good ground in between ground and the bad ground so rather than one person getting all the good stuff it was shared out between everybody Clever, absolutely yeah. The villagers here also practiced a tradition called bullying, where cattle was driven to upland areas for summer pasturage. If you have cattle and crops all together, then, well, things aren't going to work out well. So when they decided that it was time to uh, plant the crops, they had an ingenious method. They took the cattle, rounded them all up, took them away to other areas on the mountain or on the island. So they took them over to an area right at the back of this mountain, Slevemoor, behind us. Uh, where they would spend probably from springtime into autumn when the harvest would be finished, the cattle would come back and of course then the cattle would do two things for them. They would dig up the ground with their hooves and automatically fertilise it for the following year. Hmm. As I say, these people were highly intelligent. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And that, that system, that, that, yeah, sorry. that Rundale system, that, that, when would that have gone from? So that basically went from very early times, yeah. so right up to, I suppose, when we got our independence to a certain extent. So that, that movement of cattle and people, the movement of cattle, I suppose, really, uh, that term for it is bulliacht, mm -hmm. or bullying, another word for it, or another word is transhumance, which more or less is still practiced right across the world to this day even in the great country of America. So transhumance is that thing you see in Italy or even I've seen in Africa where they bring in the cattle up so to the highlands. So it's the movement of the cattle from the lowlands up into the highlands uh, for the spring and summer. Okay. Yeah. And this so run... That was practice here right up, I suppose. It died out 
um, I suppose in the mid 40s and 1940s was the last time it was practiced. Actually, it is said that bullying here on Ackle was the last time anywhere on the island of Ireland that it was practiced. Really? Yeah, and it was practiced here in this village. And it had been practiced since what the early medieval age, maybe? Oh, absolutely, yeah. It seems there's no end of surprises when it comes to this village. Just as I'm thinking about the ingenuity of the people who lived here from the 18th century onwards, Jared surprises me with even more astounding history. These houses, as I said before, are from the late 1700s, but apparently they're built on top of much older dwellings that might date back to between the 6th and 12th centuries. The Ackle Archaeological Field School, which operates in this area for the past number of years, Mm -hmm. they have excavated a number of houses here. And right down to the plan underneath the foundation, very basic foundation, they have found a circular, roundish type house. The clock-on type house, the no beehive way. type house. Yeah. So this, these buildings now, they, these 18th century buildings are on top of something far older? Yeah, remodelled, remodelled. Uh-huh. We're not saying everyone is. I know. And this, this wall here, okay, the wall here we're looking at, and right in front of us, doesn't catch anybody's eye really, no, it's, not, it's nothing major. It's standing up. Absolutely. It's just another Irish field wall. This country has enough stone field walls. This one here, this is one of the early Bronze Age field walls. Come on. So the people that built that are dead, give or take, between uh, three and a half and maybe 4,000 years. Ah, for God's sake. 2000 BC, 1500 BC roughly. Basically, yeah. The the Bronze Age here in, in Ireland. What do we know? Those farmers, as you said, three and a half, four thousand years ago, were here. They were farming the same. They were farming cattle. Absolutely, it? yeah. These were the first farmers. These were the first guys to settle down to put in crops. Prior to that, you had the Mesolithic. These were the guys that came to an area, settled for a while, utilized every resource that was available to mm-hmm. them, and moved on. Yeah, yeah. But these guys, the Neolithic guys, they're the guys that came, stayed in an area, settled in the area, and planted crops and had their cattle with them as well. So there was a sign there like on Baile Trake and this yes. is the deserted village. So Correct. what happened? Why is it deserted? <laughs> well, the reason it was deserted, believe it or believe it not, there was a couple of reasons. One of them was the war with Napoleon. Huh. There you go. <laughs> What's Napoleon yeah. got to do with the Ackle? Napoleon had a lot to do with it, actually. During the Napoleonic Wars of the early 1800s, villages like this one in Britain and its colonies were turned into so-called bread baskets. Local farmers grew grain that was used to feed British troops on the battlefield. So with the income these people were getting from that selling of that grain, they were able to survive, just able to survive. Um, and this is the 18th century? 18th century. It's pre-famine, and that's yeah. what kept them going. The very first early 1800s. At the same time, the population of the area grew. Demand for land increased, and so too did the rents. When the wars ended, though, there was little need for the grain crop that farmers here were growing. Then, with no income to pay the rent, many people were brutally evicted from their homes. So a lot of people left the village, and then... Of course, in the 1845, you had the introduction of the potato blight. And the potato blight was really, I suppose, the, one of the death knells of the village itself. This represents one of the darkest periods in the history of Ireland and the history of Ackle. 
for one third of Ireland's population, the potato was the sole source of nourishment. But in Mayo, it was estimated that nine tenths of the population depended on it. Ackle Island was particularly badly hit because given the poor quality of the soil, few other things would grow. Within the space of a decade, Mayo lost about a third of its population through death and emigration, dropping from almost 390,000 in 1841 to around 275,000 a decade later. And the rest of us often forget quite how impactful the famine was to Mayo. Like I was in Wexford last week and it, it, there's almost very little uh, potency to do with the famine there. But here it, it was huge, wasn't it? Absolutely. Majority of the people, as I say, lived in one roomed house. If they put on another room for their cattle, their rent went up. And as I said earlier, if the rent went up, it was the chances are that you were dumped out on the side of the road, you wouldn't be able to afford it. So there was a thin line that these guys knew. If they put their head above that line, it was knocked off. So they utilised everything available to them to improve themselves, but not show outward signs of improvement. Many people moved to the coast to fish for herring to ward off starvation. But during those famine years, herring, which normally came close to shore, tragically remained in deeper waters, too far out for the local boats to reach. And uh, you also have uh, an account of fishermen during the famine period being arrested off the end of Ackle Head here. They were both seized by the Coast Guard, the then Coast Guard, no relation to the Coast Guard we have now, and sold at auction because they didn't have a license to fish to keep body and soul together. So there are the types of things that were, were on the go. And uh, as well as that, you also had a downturn in the temperature. So during the famine years, it was extremely cold as well. So not alone were you hungry, you were also cold. So everything that could have went wrong, went wrong for them. God, you've given, basically you've given me this insight into hundreds and thousands of years of Ireland just through one mountainside. That's all, that's all, yeah. That's yeah it's all recorded there. Uh, right down to the, the modern age, right down to the early Christian age. Is that the 8th century or so? Uh, 664. Okay. 664, yeah. yeah. So, so All of that, as you say, recorded in the landscape. The landscape here. is this, like this manuscript that if you can decode it, which you can, suddenly we see what's going on. Absolutely, yeah. It's an amazing sight. There's probably no better example of how the past can be read in the landscape than the ridges running up the sides of Slea of Moor. Long growing beds dug in the 18th and 19th centuries when the population was so great that every square inch was being used to grow potatoes. The thing that gets me though is that sometimes the ridges are so visible because they were never dug up. Either the people had died or emigrated or were too weak to dig them or else they noticed the blight rotted stems and knew there'd be nothing but a slimy mush beneath the soil. It's hard not to imagine the suffering. I can feel it inside, and yet I'm aware I spend much of my time blocking it out. The famine is a trauma that's deep within us, not just in our minds, but in our cellular structure too, our internal organs, the nervous system, according to the latest biochemical research. Visiting these sites, the abandoned villages, famine pits, workhouses, famine roads and walls, it's never easy, but it can help us come to terms with it all to solve the hungry ghosts of our ancestors. The last house in this village, the very last house to be closed, was in the late 1950s. 
that's now there was only one house in operation at that stage. But a peculiar thing happened in the village, that the village became the Bowley village of these other villages all the way around us. So people brought their cattle over here for the summer period, spring and summer period, uh, and then brought them back to the, the other, the then main villages, the now main villages on the island. So up here until the 40s, I said about 1945, there or thereabouts, that's when bullying was still practiced in this village. I'm mixed between two different feelings. Like you're blowing my mind with the theory, with the concept that there was these Bronze Age farmers, that there was all this continuance of tradition over thousands of years. And yet there's this sort of sadness, there's this haunted quality Absolutely. to the place. Absolutely. It's like a lost so world. You can, you can be here on certain times um, where you will feel that, yeah, there's something else here with me. There is no doubt about it. There is no doubt about it. So if you, if you do the math and you think 137 houses, 8 to 10 to 15 people per house, that is a huge amount of people going about their daily business, interacting with the land, interacting with one another. They had to leave some residue of themselves behind. And there are certain times when you can feel those little hairs here at the back of the neck going, bing. You've been listening to The Almanac of Ireland, presented by me, Moncon McGann. The series was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee and produced by Colette Kinsella. It's a Red Hair Media production for RT Radio.